Welcome back to the Depth and Life podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Pirtle. Today we'll be talking to Aaron Riley. Aaron is the director of Greenwich Academy's state-of-the-art engineering and design lab. She is also the author of the new book, The Art of Digital Fabrication, STEAM Projects for the Makerspace and Art Studio. Digital fabrication is a blanket term which for most people calls to mind techniques like 3D printing, CNC milling, vinyl cutting, and laser cutting. But digital fabrication is really any process that involves using CAD software, computer-aided design, and then CAM software, computer-aided manufacturing. A practical example goes like this. We use CAD software like SolidWorks or Tinkercad to make a 3D model, and then we need to use CAM software to prepare the 3D model to actually be 3D printed. Another common example would be to use some design software like Adobe Illustrator or Inkscape to design some parts that we intend to laser cut. After we export our project in Adobe Illustrator or Inkscape, we would commonly send our project to something like VisiCut, which can talk directly to the laser cutter. Digital fabrication generally falls into two categories, additive and subtractive processes. In additive processes, we are adding material little by little. Fuse deposition modeling style 3D printers are a common additive process in digital fabrication. Melted material called filament is extruded onto a bed layer by layer, resulting in a 3D print. CNC milling is a good example of a subtractive process. A design is prepared in CAM software and sent to the CNC mill, which carves out a 3D form from materials like wood, foam, or metal. Digital fabrication techniques are powerful and popular because they allow the user to go from concept to prototype very quickly. Rapid prototyping through digital fabrication encourages an iterative approach. We all know that ideas aren't usually born perfect, but through iteration can be perfected through incremental improvement. So Aaron, I'd like to start with asking kind of about how you got started, but even going back before your formal training as an artist, what were you interested in as a child? Um, so I've always been a maker of things. Um, as uh, a young person, I was always just very interested in exploring my world through the creation of, of things. Um, I was very, very fortunate. I grew up in a family of makers themselves. Um, my, uh, both my parents are in, um, in uh, like science and engineering, and they're also makers and fixers. Um, so we had a lot of just raw materials around the house. Um, we had a wood shop, and we had um, like uh, a kind of a craft room um, I had in my, in my personal space in my room, I had um, an easel and a drafting table. And so there were always places and spaces to make things. And I think um, that was really, as a child, I was, I was always surrounded with opportunities to kind of craft and design my world. Um, so I think that was very, very um, informative in terms of how I d 
developed um, as a maker. You kind of had these dual interests in science and the arts. And mm -hmm. did you combine those in middle school and high school or did you keep them separate? I know that the way that they have been taught traditionally keeps them separate, um, even though they really shouldn't be, of course. Yeah, they were definitely, definitely separate in my my education. And I remember very clearly um, as as a student liking both my art classes and my science classes and my math classes. And um and I think it really speaks to um, the, how makerspaces can so beautifully combine those um, disciplines because at the core, um, I think that um, STEM and the arts and the, the building of your world are all kind of um, intertwined. And um, as a child, I was very much interested in all of those things. And initially... Um, when I went to college, uh, I really thought I was going to take a path and study science. And, and those first um, those first couple of years, that's, that was my focus in school. Um, and um, about a year and a half in, I, I pivoted and I, I um, kind of reconsidered my path at that point um, and took a break. And then um, actually came back to study art. Um, so there was a, you know, at some point I realized that I needed to be, um, while that interest in, in kind of the STEM areas did not um, necessarily, uh, that didn't go away, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I was, I became very interested in pursuing a path that was a little more open-ended. Um, so then I went on to get an art degree and, um, and then later I went on to get an MFA. Um, but I still feel like that, that sort of foundational training, um, was always informing me in, in my work, um, even as an artist. So, um, it's been terrific to work within this space, um, of bringing these worlds together. That makes sense. So what types of media were you focused on in your art programs? So I initially um, became very, very uh, interested in mixed media um, work. And um, so when I went off to school to study art, I found myself kind of taking a deep dive in um, kind of material exploration. I was doing, I was creating um, paintings and um, combining different um, materials like wax and paint and fabric and um, welding and 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 um, carpentry and um, and also I became very interested in color and the chemistry of paint and how all of these things sort of um, work together. So it was interesting how um, that kind of found a natural bridge into my work as an artist. And it's today, it's, um, I teach, I teach these creative technologies classes. And um, it's funny, that is such a fundamental to what we do, this kind of material um, exploration and, and um, diving into understanding um, uh, what's possible with with materials and the kind of the science behind that. Um, so that's been, that's been an interesting um, sort of wedding of those worlds. 
you know, after you received your Master of Fine Arts from the Maryland Institute College of Art, kind of what led, what path led you to the pre-K through 12th grade uh, school environment? Yeah, um, so uh, I had a degree, <laughs> and there I was, um, and I had to kind of figure out what my path was uh, moving forward. I did work, um, I did freelance work, I worked for artists and um, and patched together jobs. I worked in my studio. Um, and I, we were living in New York at the time. And I, um, I was really, really fortunate to, um, come across an opportunity to work for a nonprofit called Studio in a School. And, um, they, uh, they, Studio in a School was, uh, created, um, in, the 70s um, as a, um, to help um, support arts programs in public schools. There uh, were some funding problems and this, the nonprofit um, was uh, built to uh, bring more opportunities to students um, who didn't have as much access to, to arts programming in their school. And uh, uh, artists with, um, with training, trained artists came in and actually worked with students, um, in school environments. Um, so I was really lucky to, um, be given an opportunity to work with this organization. And, um, I, uh, started working in a school in Brooklyn and, um, as a long-term artist. And I, I would, I would uh, work with them four days a week. And because I wasn't a, um, a certified teacher and I didn't have my credentials, um, I always had to be in the classroom with a fellow teacher. So um, I, I look to that, to that beginning and, and my sort of formation as a teacher. I look to, to that setup where I was always partnered with a teacher and collaborating with the teacher and collaborating um, on these interdisciplinary projects um, where we were learning from each other as super foundational to the way that I teach today. So, you know, this was like um, a little over 20 years ago when I was doing this work. And, um, and it was my first introduction to teaching because I had um, gone to school for education. So this was, this was really how I learned to teach. And it really engaged my interest area as well, um, because I I think of myself as very much a uh, interdisciplinary thinker. Um, so to be able to work with teachers and match up um, these these arts concepts and material explorations and and expressions with content area things that. Um, areas that students were learning outside of an art room, um, I found that really, really exciting. And I found that partnership really exciting. So then um, I worked I worked in that context for uh, four years. And um, eventually, so then I eventually uh, uh, moved to uh, the school where I'm currently at. So we're at uh, independent school, K-12, uh, girl school. And I came in as a middle school art teacher. And um, what I found really exciting um, was that 
there was a lot of collaborative spirit on this campus as well. So when I um, began teaching within this school community, um, I found a lot of my colleagues really excited and willing to partner as well. So I brought that spirit of, um, of interdisciplinary um, teaching style into the current um, school that I work. And um, it was a perfect match for me. That's great. Um, so transitioning, so that was your initial role there. Now you're the Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Alexander Jackson, Director of Engineering and Design at Greenwich Academy. So what do you do in this role? What does, entail, what does that uh, entail for you each day? So we are now in our seventh year um, of, this, of this lab, and it, um, it was a uh, project um, to build this lab. It came out of, it sprung out of a collaboration between our STEM and our, our arts programming. Um, so my role has sort of uh, evolved and it's been, it's been really exciting. The first year um, I worked in this lab, um, we were, it was a, a, a situation when we, we started the lab, we didn't, we were, were fortunate to get a gift from our parents board um, in the late spring, the year before we opened, and we didn't have anybody to officially staff the space. Um, so the way we set up our, our program is we put together a team of teachers. Um, I was one, on, one person on this team that um, partnered with faculty across the campus. And um, so sort of out of the gate, the, the lab was very much a collaborative effort. Um, and then, um, so I was teaching in the art room, in the studio. At the time I was teaching um, high school art classes. I was teaching art one. I was teaching um, a, a drawing class. Um, I was also teaching one middle school class, I think at the time. And I was also working on the gallery so I had lots of um, sort of pieces to my work. Um, and because I wasn't officially in the lab um, as the, the director or the lab manager, what I was doing was I was bringing my studio classes into the lab and as well as supporting other faculty on campus who wanted to do projects in there. Um, but it was a really like, fascinating um, colliding of worlds that year um, because um, I was officially teaching studio classes, but then we had this amazing digital fabrication lab where I was just learning some of these technologies um, and kind of combining my past uh, studio knowledge and design knowledge um, and figuring out ways I could kind of merge those two worlds. And it was such a fun year of play and experimentation. And my classes were so excited to be in there. So that first year was like a lot of um, bridging of studio practice with digital fabrication. Um, and I, I think of that, that year as foundational to kind of what we do today in that um, I mashed those two worlds together and, um, and, a lot of that still kind of carries into the work that we do. Um, so then after, after year one, I stepped into the role officially as the 
the director of this space and, and, have, and have been in that role for the last six years. And um, in that time, we've built programs um, and our program uh, is a, uh, I guess you would consider it a um, interdisciplinary uh, uh, program on one hand. Um, so one arm to our program is this interdisciplinary um, arm. And then the other piece is we do offer courses in our labs. So um, in our K, like K through 12 um, class uh, community or K through 12 community of learners, um, I uh, act as a faculty partner for, for teachers. And um, the goal is, our aim is to see every grade level um, over the course of the year through some sort of integrated project. Um, so I do that um, along with my, my um, partner and colleague, Zoe, who's in here with me too. So I don't do this work alone. Um, there's other teachers who teach in, in the space with me. So we work on those projects together. And then in addition to that, um, I teach an eighth grade uh, creative technologies class, which is, which is officially an art class and we hold it in the lab. Um, and then I teach these, I teach high school classes, um, one of them a creative technologies class. Our uh, semester cl uh, uh, class is focused on building and fabrication. And our, um, our second semester class, our spring um, semester, is focused on, on programming and doing work with using programming tools and algorithmic design um, for uh for our work and our output. And then I also teach two uh, sections of engineering and design. And then the other thing to mention is all the classes that I teach are co-taught in some capacity. I'm either um, teaching with my colleague Zoe or teaching with another faculty member or partnering with a teacher who's working on a project um, in this space. That's great. I think that's such a fantastic model, the co-teaching. So yeah. just kind of just uh, I've seen pictures, I've seen videos of the lab. I haven't had the uh, the chance to actually be physically in the lab. But I was wondering if you could just describe what it looks like, what the environment is like, what's in the lab, like as far as equipment goes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're, we're basically a big uh, open space <laughs> that um, over time has um, filled with all sorts of things, um, all sorts of materials and objects. Um, uh, the way we're uh, set up is our, we have machines sort of on the periphery um, of, our, of our space, um, and we're a full digital fabrication lab. So we have um, a full-sized uh, ShopBot, which is a CNC router um, for uh, cutting material. Um, we, that that particular fabrication machine gives us the capability to make full-scale sculptural um, objects, furniture, um, or just large, large things. Um, and we, uh, that's on one side of our lab. And then we have a couple laser cutters. Um, we have 3D printers. We have a, like a countertop of 3D printers. Um, we have a vinyl cutter. We have several machines that we draw with, like a couple of axi draws and um, um, some craft cutters. 
we have a large scale printer. Um, and then we have a lot of uh, microcontrollers and electronics components, soldering stations, and um, we have a big tool cart that um, we have saws and files and various other hand tools um, for building. And we have a couple workbenches and um, tables that are um, both on casters, so you can move them around, and they are adjustable in height. Um, and uh, all of our tables have butcher block surfaces, so we can cut and we can, um, they can just take a beating, you know, we can do all sorts of like hard work on them and, um, and scrape them down and sand them down. So they have this nice patina of, of age and work on them. Um, and then our, our, uh, workbenches, we have just sort of cheap uh, wood on them so we can drill into our workbenches and we can replace the tabletops when we need to. Um, and yeah, and, and just everything with the exception of our, like our heavier machines are movable. So we can, we feel like we need to kind of rearrange the space. We can do that. Um, we also share our space with our robotics teams, which are after-school programs, um, so that we have a large uh, uh, field for um, for our upper-school robotics, and then we have a smaller field for our middle-school robotics, and then all of their cabinets for their tools. And um, so we share that space, which is a really nice um, uh, sort of partnership and synergy between the two programs. And then um, off kind of in the, in the corner to the side, we have this monster of a recycle pile that just makes me so happy <laughs> every day <laughs> because it's just full of all sorts of like odds and ends and delightful scraps. Um, and it's a sort of organic uh, thing and also dynamic thing. People bring um, interesting throwaways and add it to our recycle pile. And then people come and take things. So they leave things and they take things. Classes come visit it when they're, they're embarking upon a project. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful resource for both inspiration and um, also um, it's quite useful. Um, we use the, the things we collect all the time in, in all of our projects. That's, that's such a sustainable way to manage kind of the cast-offs that makerspaces create and to bring in useful things from other spaces. One of the things I was going to ask you about is, I mean, it sounds like there's a very established curriculum for your older learners, but what is your approach? What, what When you're partnering with a teacher for younger learners, pre-K through second, third, fourth, what is your approach for kind of getting them into this design and engineering space? So um, we, um, we're, we're so lucky that we, we get a chance to see um, our, our youngest students in that space. Um, and we worked really hard to engage with, with our early childhood because um, we feel strongly that that's where it, it starts and to feel um, both comfortable in navigating that space and to make that just part of your, your learning at, at the school. Like that's part of your everyday thing. You, you know, you, you take um, you take dance class, you take art class, you learn you know math, and you learn science, and you come to the engineering and design lab. Like that just becomes 
part of what you do, then it it's it's um, I feel like it it gives access to all of our students. Um, so one thing that um, we do with our lower grades is we we focus on hand building. We focus on you know using materials and learning about materials and less on the digital. So the digital doesn't really come into play very much with our younger grades. Um, with one exception, we've, we do find opportunities um, in our lower school to have students need a tool or get or learn about a process as a way of kind of previewing the possibilities of what's to come. So, um, for instance, just to give you an example, we... Um, we've done this project or my, my colleague Zoe has done this project with our, our lower school artists where they learn about turning flat to 3D or flat shapes into three-dimensional shapes um, using, um, using the laser cutter. So uh, they, it's just a very, very simple project where they, they make drawings um, and then those drawings uh, become vectorized. So we will vectorize those drawings and then um, the class will take a visit to the engineering and design lab and learn about the laser cutter and see their drawings go from flat to 3D. Um, so the idea is they're not, they're not actually learning how to use the laser cutter, but they're, they're getting kind of a first introduction to this tool can be this. And um, so we find those opportunities with, with our younger students just to introduce a concept, um, but firmly grounding it in like the hands-on materials that they're using currently. Um, so then later when they're a little bit older and they're using laptops and they're doing digital design in their art classes, like in middle school, then we can start introducing digital fabrication. And there's, there's already a scaffolding for that in, in sort of a context. Um, so that would be the exception. So we tend to focus on processes like woodworking and sewing and, um, sort of general construction principles, how to cut things, how to shape things, how to attach things. Um, and our goal is, you know, through the lower school that they're developing a really um, rich experience of like building vocabulary um, and um, kind of spatial intelligence, um, moving between uh, two-dimensional understanding, three-dimensional understanding, and just having a lot of experience using their hands um, and visualizing and um, taking what's in their head, taking those ideas that are that they're imagining and then putting those ideas into the, into a physical thing. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's our that's our focus. Um, and in our in our uh, First grade, I'll, I'll tell you about a couple programs, actually. So um, our first grade and our fourth grade are paired together. We have a, a, a little sister and big sister program. Um, and our fourth grade students 
um, are with me the entire year. Um, they come every two weeks to the lab and they design toys for their little sisters. So the first kind of introduction to the lab in first grade is as a little sister where they get to um, act as a client um, and partner uh, with, with fourth graders and the fourth graders will make toys for them. They, they provide feedback. They, um, or they make prototypes, they provide feedback, they refine their prototypes, and then they make final toys. And then at the end of um, the year, it culminates in, in, a, in a play date. So that's one introduction to the lab on, on the receiving side of, a, of a, a toy that's made by their big sister. They also come in for um, what's called tinker time. And this was a project that was spearheaded by the first grade teachers. And they come in and they do a lot of like uh, uh, material exploration. We do things like squishy circuits and um, uh, they, they uh, experiment and build with straw beads. Um, we have these uh, sort of self-contained experiences where they can kind of get their hands in different materials um, and kind of learn about um, the, you know, wonderful um, material possibilities in the space. So that's really fun. And the teachers have really taken the lead on that one. And um, I see them, um, it's, it works out to about once a month, um, they'll come in for that. Um, and it accelerates towards the end of the year. It's it, towards the beginning of the year, they're mostly in their classroom and then they, they spend more time in the lab as the year goes on. Um, we have, we will have for the first time this year, the second grade will be coming in for um, cardboard construction um, and um, sort of developing a tool set around that. Um, and um, that those are just like a couple of examples. Oh, and oh, we also have the third grade that comes in for woodworking and they also build, um, they do a whole study around um, the birds of Connecticut through their science class. So I see them once every uh, month. Um, they'll come in for, for a session and then over the course of the year, they build these bird boxes um, and learn. We've, I work, I've been working um, closely with the uh, science teacher on this project, kind of developing this curriculum. She's an engineer by training. So um, she's really used this bird uh, box build as a way to uh, explore um, engineering principles. And it's been really, really fun to collaborate with her because um, she does a really deep dive into engineering principles for the construction of this bird box. And then on the science side, they're, they're learning about the science of birds. So that's been a really, really fun project. We're in our second year on that. Um, so those are, those are examples of just kind of the, the curricular threads in the lower school. One of the things that I think about, you know, when I think about the school where you work, I mean, Greenwich Academy is a college prep school for girls. And so many schools are working to mitigate issues of access to STEM fields for young women. Um, do you feel that an all-female environment mitigates some of those issues in a way that a co-ed environment might not? Definitely. Um, 
Uh, and in addition to that, the fact that we were able to introduce our girls to um, at such a young age to uh, to the possibilities um, in in building and construction and, and um, like just exploring um, really like exploring design, exploring um, ideas and bringing those ideas to form, I think is, is really, really empowering. And I think the other thing that, that um, is really advantageous, um, especially sort of in the younger grades with working in a girl's environment is um, we're able to really explore so many of the things that um, areas that have been traditionally the domain of girls. So things like crafting and art. Um, and um, so like there are many areas that we recognize as, as engineering um, and being able to put that into a context that um, shows them that the work that they're doing and, and the work that so many of, of our students will naturally gravitate to is actually engineering and technical work. Um, so that that's a real advantage to be able to kind of leverage that. And then, um, and to be able to carry that through, um, that thread through the course of, of their, you know, education. Well, yeah, that's, that sounds like, I mean, definitely the kind of recontextualizing of what is already there toward these design and engineering um, goals. It really makes so much sense in that environment. Um, changing gears just a little bit, this is exciting. Your new book just came out a few months ago, The Art of Digital Fabrication from Constructing Modern Knowledge Press. I'm just wondering if you could tell us kind of about the book and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, that book, let's see, we, we published it in, in May, um, which is really exciting. It was a two and a half year project, um, and I worked very closely with um, with Sylvia Martinez, um, who is the editor and publisher. Um, what the book contains is really at the heart of my teaching. It's um, it's full of projects that I've done with my students. So they're classroom tested. <laughs> they're 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 um, projects. Um, or project seeds that I've developed um, with my students, um, as well as the resource material that I provide um, my students. So um, it's really a snapshot of my classroom. Um, there was a, a kind of special focus uh, with this book on the intersection of art and design with um, engineering principles and makerspace tools, specifically around digital fabrication. And the idea behind that um, was I felt very fortunate to have been um, sort of in a particular place in time where my worlds collided with this work. So um, to have a design and art background and to find, to have access to digital fabrication tools where I didn't have access to them before and to develop 
a new vocabulary around them for our process, I, I found so exciting. And um, so part of the idea behind the book too, because I know a lot of schools are, you know, have built or are building um, these labs. And, um, and I, I wanted to have a reference and, and, and I wanted to be able to share the work that I, that I did and, and am continuing to do with a community of artists as well as makers um, from all different, you know, lenses. It doesn't have to be through a design lens or an art lens, but um, to provide some resources for people who are interested in doing that work and, and, and to come in from that, that entry point, um, I just found that really interesting because many schools have maker spaces and many schools have artists. And to have artists and maker spaces together is, is, is a really exciting thing. But in addition to that, to be a teacher who is not coming from an arts background and to think about, ooh, this is some way that I could introduce um, an idea through through a design or art lens. Um, I thought that that could be very valuable. So that was that was the idea behind the book. And you know, when I look at the the contents of the book, it's while there is that that art on ramp, I guess, um, or entry point. It's not just a book for an art room. It's really a hopefully a book for for anybody that's doing, um, you know, work, work in maker spaces. Yeah. I, um, you know, I was looking through the book yet again in preparation for this conversation and I've picked it up several times over the last couple of months and I'm impressed by, I mean, number one, it's really beautiful. It's, it has aspirational projects. I mean, the projects themselves, the final outcomes are beautiful works of art, but then I was extremely impressed and pleased to see um, how it really gets down to the brass tacks of like step by step how to replicate these projects and I mean you've really given educators and students and even maybe hobbyists kind of what you alluded to or artists who are working as adults uh, kind of a way to get started with digital fabrication to understand it and then to know that it's not just technology for technology's sake that it's really to do something creative for some creative endeavor. And um, yeah, I think it's a, just a fantastic work. Um, and what was, I mean, so what are you hoping educators get out of the book long-term? I mean, you kind of alluded to that previously, but I mean, what is your larger goal for the people who pick this book up? Well, I hope they just, if, if they, if they pick up the book, my hope is they get a nugget of something that inspires them and then feel like they can take it um, somewhere else. That's my hope. Um, I feel like that's one of the wonderful things about maker culture in general is that we, I think, um, makers are very generous in sharing their knowledge and sharing their expertise. And because of that, we can learn from other people. So, I mean, I, I really give all my credit to all the makers I've learned from um, that I've been able to kind of collect this knowledge um, and apply it to um, to my students and bring, you know, my my lens into it. So that's my hope. My hope is that people could could look at maybe 
one of these projects or many of these projects and say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, what can I take from this and how can I, you know, make that possible in, in my makerspace or in my art room with my particular, you know, twist on it or my, you know, so it's, it's, I hope it becomes a springboard for something new, um, that and personal. That's great. I, um, you kind of touched on this and you and I've chatted about this previously, but I think it's interesting as I watch uh, a lot of different schools, try different models for staffing makerspaces, you know, you and I both share the kind of a common background with, you know, traditional arts training, master of fine arts. So I wonder like what you see as the advantages of having a trained artist leading a makerspace in a school. Well, one thing I, I think um, that with that we recognize in, in makerspaces is the work that that happens in a makerspace tends to be open-ended. Um, you're never sure what challenge is going, going to come your way. It, it requires a kind of flexibility and um, of, of mind um, and willingness to tackle uh, roadblocks and come up with solutions. Um, and that is very much what happens in art process. Um, so I think that there's a really strong parallel to, to uh, having a sort of an open mind um, and, and an observant eye or just an, an observant just being observant in general to phenomena, what can happen. And, um, and I think that's one, one thing an artist can bring into a maker space is, is sort of a, it's a maker's mindset essentially. Um, and in addition to that, I think uh, artists tend to be pretty well equipped to, to handle chaos um, and to handle like the management of of uh, individual pathways for students. So, you know, in the art room, we see just a wide variety of solutions that people come up with or a wide variety of expressions, whatever that might be. And um, it doesn't always neatly fit into um, sort of an, a predetermined end result. Um, and that, that's, that's something that um, I feel like artist training um, does. I think it, 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 it equips you for that, that kind of um, handling differences and different solutions and chaos. And also um, being open to like serendipity and in moments of, of unexpected um, phenomenon that you can you can incorporate into your work and being able to change gears with your students so that that I think is is uh, a really um, wonderful thing that comes out of an, an artist training um, and asking good questions and building good prompts prompts that um, are open-ended and uh, encourage encourage creativity. Um, 
that's something that arts training, I think, is really, really uh, good at doing. Um, and then for an artist who comes from like a physical arts background, like a material arts background, um, in specifically in a digital fabrication space where you're, or a workshop, where you have a lot of materials, um, artists uh, get uh, training in how to order and how to manage uh, materials, uh, how to manage cast-offs, how to organize and, um, and really stock uh, a, a space. Um, I think that that's, that's and, and, and just how to manage uh, uh, projects and spaces, I think, um, is, is a really um, good thing that comes out of artistry. Sure. I mean, I think I've seen that so many in so many examples, teachers who maybe come from a background where either just personality wise, they are used to a follows or is followed with B, which equals C. And as you said, I mean, you have to be able to um, celebrate the serendipitous things that happen in these kind of processes and also understand that sometimes things are going to go awry or lead to a different um, outcome. And the, you know, definitely an artist mindset from a formal training, you're used to things exploding in the kiln and, and things not turning out the way you wanted them or just being glad with the accidental way that things turned out. And I think that makes total sense. Um, another thing I was going to ask you, you know, kind of as we're wrapping up here, because I know that you have a teaching schedule today, so I want to be respectful <laughs> of that. Um, so aside from the first thing I would say is that people should buy your book. That would be a great way to start. What advice do you have for teachers that would you know, instead of maybe launching a huge lab, they just want to incorporate some aspect of digital fabrication into their classroom. Um, you know, step one would be buy your book. Um, but step two, what, what, what do you think they should do to kind of just get started to dip their toe into this work? So I would encourage um, teachers who are interested in, in venturing into digital fabrication. I would suggest starting with something you you are interested in personally. Um, find a passion project. Find something that you personally are fascinated by or are interested in. And I think starting there um, is the best avenue because when you love something, when you're interested in something, it's contagious and your your students will will um, join in and be be part of that. I, I, I really feel like teaching through your heart is the best way to go. So um, as you're, as you're um, sort of doing your research on digital fabrication, is there something that, that you find, you know, intriguing or interesting? And it could be starting, you know, starting small. And one, I think one barrier people can encounter is, is the price of machines. So there are, um, there are digital fabrication machines that are much more um, budget friendly that people can start with that, um, that can open the doors to design and fabrication um, that teach some of the same principles, some of the the uh, pricier uh, machine fabrication processes um, also teach. So to give you an example, 
Um, there are some very affordable uh, craft cutters and vinyl cutters on the market, um, uh, such as uh, the Silhouette Cameo or the Cricut, um, that will allow people to um, kind of dive into to two-dimensional design um, and fabrication through vinyl or um, paper or um, even thicker materials like uh, you know, cardstock and that sort of thing. And um, I think that that's a, a terrific entry point um, because like for something like a like design for the vinyl cutter, Designing for the vinyl cutter is on like 2D design is essentially the same as 2D design for the laser cutter. So um, something, uh, a machine that is far more expensive, um, you could be teaching the same principles um, for, uh, you know, $200 or less. So um, I, that would be my recommendation if price were a barrier. Um, and then just like really thinking about what is interesting um, to to you as as a as a teacher and as an educator um, yeah that's great advice i think you know the, the touching on the you know finding something that you're passionate about that i think that also helps people get through some of the hard times when things don't go as planned if you really love this process or you love the outcomes of these processes the you know loving it helps you get through the frustration um yeah well, well, Aaron, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time in a school day to talk to me. And this was a really great conversation. Oh, my gosh. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. Special thanks to Aaron Riley and Greenwich Academy. If you like this or other episodes, please consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Depth and Light, check out our website at depthandlight.com find us on Instagram and Twitter via the handle at depth and light.